Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. Spins and I are going to do a big picture reset of the 2023 NBA draft. It feels like most of the time, the Super Bowl post-trade deadline, that tends to be when people really start to, I think, hone in on the NBA draft as an event. And in large part, it's because teams sort of know what range they're going to be picking in. The season is far enough along. Trades have occurred. There aren't going to be any more trades until June at this point because of the deadline passing. So teams know what selections they're going to have. And on top of it, let's just be real about it. Football takes up a lot of oxygen in the sports community. We still have the Derek Carr news that's taken up oxygen. I don't know if you saw earlier, but Aaron Rodgers went on Pat McAfee's show and just shit all over a report about his goings on. Football still will take up some oxygen, but it feels like there's more oxygen for basketball and the NBA in general. So it's a good time to just kind of set everybody up in order to kind of understand where this 2023 NBA draft is. We're going to do that. Then at the end of the show, I want to talk a little bit about Ben Simmons and whatever in the world is happening there, because I think there are a number of factors that we'll talk about. And I think there's one that's pretty significant, but we want to dive in and talk about Ben Simmons and just the sadness that is his situation with the Brooklyn Nets spins. That's a hundred seconds of me talking in a row. What's going on, buddy? Hey, Sam. Uh, really good to to be here with you on the pod. A little bit different than our normal routine of recording on Sunday nights. But uh, if there's one thing I've learned in the podcasting world, it's not to go head to head with the Super Bowl. So uh, I think this was a smart choice on our part to steer clear a couple days. And then also, like you said, give us that reset button, a little bit more clarity post-trade deadline this last kind of few days here before we get to all-star break and making sure that you know we've got a clear picture of what the NBA season is going to look like for the next few months and how that's going to impact the 2023 NBA draft. That's exactly right. We've already got... Rob Doster in the comments, good friend Uh-oh. of the program, asking why Trey Alexander isn't a lock first rounder. We will get to that after we talk about some of the bigger issues in the NBA draft. So th- this is genuinely going to be us talking through kind of everything at the top of the draft, everything through the middle of the first round, a- everything that we see, right? Th- this isn't a situation where – we're getting into the nitty gritty. We're, we're not going to be like, you know, deep diving for 45 minutes into Scoot Henderson, right? I'm going to ask spins questions. We're going to discuss them and then we're going to move on and we're going to try and figure out where this entire picture stands. So the first question at the top of everybody's mind when it comes to the 2023 NBA draft is undeniably Victor Wembanyama. I will ask you this very simple question from the start. 
Has Victor Wembanyama or anybody else in this 2023 NBA draft done anything to make you believe that he is one, anything less than a generational prospect two, anything less than the clear number one overall pick in this draft or three, any situation where a team could make a wild choice and make a decision to not take Victor Wembanyama based on him being a center and the fit of him around the roster. Sam, I grew up in the 1990s and was a huge Michael Jordan fan. And part of my childhood was falling in love with the movie Space Jam. And I think you see where I'm going with this one here. This is the first time that we've actually had one of the Mon stars be eligible to be drafted. Victor Wembanyama is an alien with his size and skill combinations, the way that he moves on the court, just the things that he's able to do. We have never seen before in a prospect, the totality of the package that he has on both offense and defense. He has unequivocally been the number one prospect this entire draft cycle to me. I don't think that he or anyone else has done anything to change that. And I know there's always going to be some talk about injury or the worries about his body and guys at his size that might be able to you know, break down over time. That's not something that worries me because what I would be more worried about if I control the first overall pick is passing on such a generational talent who could so clearly change the game on both ends of the floor. If I'm worried about some what if or hypothetical situation, what he has shown this far is way too dominant to be passed up on. So I think that Victor Weminyama is not only far and away the number one prospect in this draft class, he is the best guy that I have ever scouted. And I started doing this, I guess this is the sixth draft cycle now. Uh, He's dominant. He's certainly the highest upside player that I've ever drafted or I've ever evaluated. I've never actually drafted someone for a team. I do think that there are real concerns here just in terms of the physical frame. Like he is a guy that previously has had injury concerns, but at the top of the draft, you draft for upside, right? You draft for the guy that can be the genuine franchise altering player. Victor Wembanyama is seven foot four. He has a near eight foot wingspan. This is like if Rudy Gobert size wise as a rim protector could actually go out and like create step back threes and drive all the way to the rim and attack closeouts and like straight up isolate his man and attack off the bounce, right? That's why he's the number one overall pick. This is, this is like modern day Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Shaquille O'Neal, you know, Arvita Sabonis over in Russia. If you go back and watch his highlights, uh, the, the classic who, whatever, whatever guy you want to bring up, Will Chamberlain, elite level, unbelievable talent, big man. Now we've seen those guys fail in the past, right? Ralph Sampson, his body broke down. He was the all-star game MVP, I believe in his second or third year and was well on his way to being a generational talent. It doesn't always work out for these guys, right? And that's not to say that it's a certainty that Victor Wembanyama will work out, but more often than not, it does work out for these players and these guys do become these incredible talents. And Victor Wembanyama is different than Shaquille O'Neal. He's different than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a.k.a. Lou Alcindor at the time. 
but he's kind of the modern day version of what those guys I think could have looked like as prospects. Shaq was a different beast. Man, uh, over on the tab show that I do, we recorded that yesterday and we watched some old highlights of Shaquille O'Neal and talked about it. Oh, God. I think we often forget how good of a prospect Shaquille O'Neal was. What a that guy was so explosive. He had the balance of a ballerina, as my uh, partner in crime over there, Benyam Kadane, brought up. Uh, he could move like a Mack truck, like he would go through you at the yep. rim. Yep. He would tear down the rim. He was an unbelievable prospect, and I want to bring that up because I think he often is forgotten about, not only in terms of. I think his dominance is forgotten about. Like, I think he is unequivocally a top 10 player in NBA history uh, in his prime. I've never seen anything like Shaquille O'Neal, certainly since I've been like covering basketball. I I think that his peak is better than Tim Duncan's peak. You can make the case that maybe Tim Duncan and his longevity was a little bit better, but Shaquille O'Neal, I think was just more dominant when he was at his ceiling. But regardless, I I think that we often kind of forget he's not brought up enough in these discussions about like, Oh my God, this guy was maybe the best prospect since Kareem when he was coming out of LSU. Well, Shaq just commanded double teams with those Lakers teams and even earlier with Orlando, but the way that he was able to handle them, like he could score legitimately through two people. And that, (laughs) that's the scariest part. Like, you know, guys who are, talented scorers they draw double teams and they are smart enough to pass it and let their team play four on three elsewhere like Shaq just went through two guys and was able to finish at the hoop anyway that he was Lakers Shaq was just different it was so fun it was so so fun so it was underrated like Orlando Shaq was different than LA Shaq because Orlando Shaq could like move and he would run and he would like you know his agility and mobility was just something completely different for someone that was 300 pounds. Uh, yeah, no, Shaquille O'Neal is unbelievable. Okay, now that all of that is out of the way, Victor Wembanyama is somewhere on that level as a prospect. He's the number one overall pick. I don't think there's a case for a team to take anybody different. And this comes from someone that I think I am personally higher on Scoot Henderson than the consensus is right not to say that people are low on him but i'm actually like on the higher end of the evaluation when it comes to scoot so i'll ask you this question do you agree with me that scoot henderson is the unequivocal no questions asked number two overall pick in the 2023 nba draft i most certainly do um, I don't know if I share the exact same level of optimism that he's going to be a far and away star without any type of warts, but I am mm-hmm. so incredibly impressed by what he's able to do as a teenager playing against professional competition, the competitive juices that he has, his balance as a scorer and a playmaker. He just We've talked about this on prior episodes of the podcast that I'd encourage people to go back and listen to. He just has that feel to know when to take over, when to create for people. And, and that clutch type of gene is something that's coveted when you're looking for a guard or somebody who's going to be able to play with the ball in their hands late clock. So I'm a really big fan of Scoot Henderson. But to me, this is almost a two-pronged question, right? Is he the unequivocal yeah. number two in this draft class? A lot of that is about Scoot Henderson. But some of that is also about who else is in competition for that spot behind Victor Weminyama. And 
I have trouble putting anybody else in this draft class close to that same tier. Uh, I think Scoot belongs kind of in his own tier, so to speak, as the number two overall prospect. Yeah. And to be honest with you, like if Vic is like at the top of tier one for me, I think Scoot is in tier one for me. Um, I I think he is that level prospect. Obviously, Victor Wembanyama is the number one player for me, but Scoot Henderson is a different dude. He is, as you mentioned, an elite level athlete in terms of explosiveness, but also an elite level athlete in terms of balance, in terms of that ability to string together multiple moves, in terms of that ability to create that little bit of separation on the ground to maneuver around rim protectors as a finisher. The thing that I think I want to see Scoot focus on most on top of the shooting where he's a little bit better of a shooter than what I think he gets credit for. He makes his free throws at a high level. He has a really good pull-up mid-range game. I'm not real worried about him shooting threes at some point. I think that's going to happen. I think more than anything, I'd like to see a little floater game. I'd like to see him bust that out a little bit more often than what we see. But the other thing that's just important to talk about here is that Scoot Henderson is a dog. Like that dude is as competitive a guy as you will find in almost any NBA draft. Like he gets after it. He will talk an immense amount of shit to you while he is beating you. And those are the dudes that I want as my centerpieces on a team. He is a hyper competitor in a way that doesn't go over the top as a, like nuisance or like a problem like that. Right. He is just the kind of person that I want leading a basketball team. He wants those big moments. He thrives in those big moments. I'm a believer in Scoot Henderson in a substantial, substantial way. You know, he's really, really good. And I think this might be the time Sam to pivot towards where the top four is in this draft class right now. Yeah. So I want to, I want to jump into one of those guys next, because I think that I think it's important to talk first about the Thompson twins and where they fit within this and then go to like the top five, because I think the top five is really interesting. So the Thompson twins, Amon and Asor Thompson are currently with overtime elite, which is a new program. This is the second year where scouts and evaluators have had to go down to Atlanta and really get a feel for what that quality of competition looks like. The players there are better this year. Robert Dillingham is there. Cannon Carlisle is there this year. There is more talent surrounding the Thompson Twins that they get to compete against every week. However, this is a new organization. Those games, for people that have watched them, are often transition fests let's call them that as a more more positive spin on what they can often be a lot of these games end up not being particularly applicable oftentimes to nba scouting and some of the things that teams want to see from them in terms of half court decision making you know defensive iq as a half court player Those are the things that matter in the playoffs, execution, the ability to process things. Those are the things that you really want to see. So Amin and Asura Thompson are in an interesting position where teams have gone down to see them. And 
I'm sure you've talked to NBA teams. The feedback is more polarizing than what the consensus seems to be where myself, you, you know, John Gavoni, Jeremy Wu, whoever has Amen at number three or number four has a sore somewhere seven to 10. You kind of get it all over the map from NBA teams in part because of the situation they're within. So I will ask you this. What has been your overall feel for how this season has gone for Amin and Asor Thompson in overtime elite? Yeah, there it's such a complicated question, and it's one that I'll do my best to try to give a succinct answer to. So I think that there are two ways to break down the the season that they've had thus far. One is through the obvious need that both Amen and Asor have to continue to develop their game to make them NBA ready. And when we say develop their game, I think the thing we're looking forward to most is seeing if they can add a jump shot. When we first started doing some of these podcasts together back in August, that was what we talked about as the swing skill for Amen and Asor Thompson. Six foot seven, six foot eight, long, lanky athletes, just physical freaks with their ability to separate with a great first step, to finish above the rim, all the natural tools to be high-impact defenders. They have good vision. They have decent handles and the ability to just make really good plays as, as passers when they drive towards the lane. But the jump shot is what was missing, the ability to score and kind of create their own. And this year has not shown a ton of progress for either. There have been some slight tweaks and slight improvements made for a sore. I think that a man is starting to shoot them more and definitely continues to put in the work, but it hasn't translated over to results just yet. Uh, But that's a disappointment. From an evaluation standpoint, we want to see if these guys can become top options in the NBA who deserve to operate with the ball in their hands. And in order to be able to do that, I think a pull-up jumper is necessary as well as the ability to just consistently stretch the floor from three-point range. And neither guy is in that area right now. Well, for me, as much as anything, it's not even just the shooting. It's how do they score if they aren't at the basket? I think Asar has a little bit more in that regard. I think he's a little bit more uh, polished in terms of his footwork, he'll throw up those like weird little hook shots a little bit more often around the basket when he's driving. Like he'll, he he has a little bit more, just a little bit more craft in terms of the way he's attacking. Asor is so explosive that arguably he doesn't need as much craft, right? Or uh, Amen, I'm sorry, is a little bit more explosive that he doesn't need as much craft, right? Amen and Asor don't really have any in-between game right now either. Like the thing that almost would transform Amon's game more than the shooting is the floater. Like if he could add like a little floater from seven to 12 feet, it would be enormous for his evaluation. It, it would almost like completely change things for him, I think, as a prospect, because he is so explosive that NBA teams aren't going to be able to stay in front of him. He, he is so quick he has that first step that is unbelievable out in transition like i talked about the fact that those uh ote games become more transition fests from an evaluation perspective i often struggle to make a decision on if they are often transition fests because the thompson twins are so athletic 
they really can push the pace, push the tempo, dictate that speed of play in a way that other teams in OTE can't just straight up. So it's interesting to try and figure out and determine where exactly they settle. End of the day, Amin Thompson is the highest upside guy in this draft outside of the top two, I think. If it works, it's really going to work. And you and I, like, we have defensive questions about them a little bit. Asar has a chance to be like a great weak side rim protector, a great team defender. He's a really, really high level athlete as well. Like, Mm -hmm. Amin's going to enter the league as one of the five best athletes in the NBA, point blank. And if you think I'm exaggerating, wait until you see him. Asar is going to be what? Like a top seven or eight percent athlete in the NBA. So, like a top, top 30 athlete in the NBA he's that athletic that's not he's a genuine like maybe not elite elite level athlete but great extremely high level athlete so we're gonna see a lot of this pan out and dictate over the course of the the pre-draft process as much as anything I think NBA teams are going to be really interested to see the Thompson twins outside of the OTE structure and see them in their own gyms for workouts. And the last thing I will note on the Thompson twins and why I tend to buy into them still, I think a little bit more than some NBA teams do. There are NBA teams that are very high on them. I don't, don't, and NBA evaluators that are very high on them. When I say they're polarizing, I mean, genuinely like there are teams that absolutely think they are incredibly talented and love them. There are also teams that worry a lot more about their flaws right now than others they are superb workers and they are hyper competitors like they they really really are the kind of players that i trust and buy into getting better over time and they take constructive criticism as well for people that want to go back and watch the tape watch along i did with the thompson twins we discussed the shooting they know and they will attack it and they will come at you and say, look, we know we have to get better at this. They're not people who just shut down when that happens. They want to hear it. They want to have that understanding of what they have to do to get better. So I believe in the Thompson twins. I will say it's no luck that they go in the top three, in the top five. Like I think they, I think Almond probably ends up in the top five. But it is, it's a little bit more open and it will be very dependent upon where teams fall when the lottery rolls around. Yeah. I don't know if you meant to give that pun there when you said that you thought that the Thompson twins would get better over time. Cause that was, that was an elite pun that you kind of gave right there. Uh, yeah. Look, I, I totally agree with all that stuff. I think the point that you made that rings true to me is trying to figure out if the Thompson twins are a product of the environment for how much they play in transition or the cause of, of their team being able to play in transition so much. And I, I did a deep dive about a week or so ago into the numbers behind this. Your general average NBA team probably plays about 16 to 17% of the time in transition, according to Synergy Sports, that those are the amount of possessions that end in transition. And the overtime elite program with City Reapers, the team that Amen and Asor play on, they're over 30%, almost double 
that amount. So it is laughable how much this just turns into like a track meet with them using their athleticism, their instincts. They gamble a lot on defense and they can get away with it. But when you talk about the half court evaluation, that's what matters in playoff time. That's what's going to matter if games on the line in a, in a clutch postseason series can amend, can a sore really break down a defense in the half court. And I think that we've seen a little bit more of red flags start to pop up about whether it's finishing ability, separation, driving into traffic. Like, look, the way that teams defend them in that OTE program, as soon as they start to drive it, they send three to the lane and try to collapse yep. on them. That's not yep. necessarily going to happen in the NBA, and teams can't get away with doing that. But it certainly does reveal some of the challenges like we talked about, about the in-between game that just hasn't developed. I think there's still a lot left to really refine for these guys and how they're going to impact on the offensive end of the floor, as well as some challenges mechanically that they need to sort through on defense. So really high upside, ridiculously good kids with high work ethic, but they're going to be still fairly raw when they when they come into the league. And I think that that's an underrated aspect of trying to evaluate where they stack up next to other guys in this class. Last question on the Thompsons for now. Where do you have them ranked at this point? So I just made an adjustment this past weekend and moved Amen from the three spot to number four, uh, just from watching a little bit of play here. And, uh, that We can talk about him later, but Brandon Miller from Alabama has surpassed him for that spot for me. I have a sore at 13. I'm a little bit lower okay. than most people are on a sore, but I have them at four for a man and 13 for a sore. Okay. I have a man at three and I have a sore somewhere in that like back half of the top 10. Uh, well, I'll do a top 100 ranking at some point, probably at the end of this month, if you made me bet. Um, but it, it'll be somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, you know, three for a man, 10, seven to 10 for a sore. Sure. Okay. Next question. You kind of led into it for me. Who is the college prospect that has most excited you this season? Yeah, it's it's definitely Brandon Miller from Alabama for me. Uh, six foot eight, maybe six foot nine forward, who has been one of the most consistent, if not the most consistent three point shooter in college basketball. And whenever you have size and the ability to shoot, you're going to get a lot of attention and buzz from NBA teams. But to me, it's the rest of the pieces to the puzzle about Brandon that make me so giddy for his future. First and foremost, when we look at the improvement that he's made already in the season, that's always something I'm paying attention to as a a talent evaluator. Are guys getting better? Are they adapting to their environment? Are they able to be coachable and put things into practice? And the answer is unequivocally yes from Brandon with what we've seen this year. He's shown some real patience as a pick-and-roll operator, something I really didn't think we'd see coming into his freshman season at Alabama where they're kind of giving him the keys to make a lot of plays happen as more of a facilitator. He's really gotten better as a finisher near the basket, got off to a really poor start to the season, wasn't converting, had some takeoff issues with how far away he was jumping from the basket, wasn't separating from his man one-on-one, but he's learned to play more controlled, more physical, just get to the basket, convert through contact. That improvement is really getting me more excited for him. Trivia time, Uh Adam Spinella. In SEC play, that's 12 games, what is Brandon Miller shooting from two-point range? 
So I have an idea, but I'm going to just, it's not a, a firm number here. 63.5% is going to be my guess. God damn it, Spins. 63.6% is what Brandon Miller is shooting at the uh, from two-point range in SEC play. Look, I understood all of the concerns that people had with him as a driver, as a finisher. I still think he needs to get a little bit stronger through his lower half, through his core, in order to more capably manage the contact that he'll have to play through at the next level, not just when he rises up to finish, but also just being able to get there on the ground. I think that higher level, stronger defenders are going to be able to stop his momentum uh, in terms of getting to the rim right now. And that's a problem that he's going to have to address. Having said that, he has answered all of the questions that people had from a college perspective in terms of getting to the basket and finishing. Anybody that is still like, oh yeah, like Brandon Miller, he's a worse prospect than Max Lewis, than Jet Howard, than, you know, X, Y, and Z guy. I I feel like you're trying too hard. I'm just going to, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I just feel like you're trying too hard and I'm willing to listen to a lot. I'm willing to be very open-minded on things. I really like guys like Max Lewis and Jet Howard. I'm sure we're going to talk about them at some point in this conversation, but I don't know, man. Like he he's answered all of the questions at this point. Yeah. And I think that we're in a place where I feel very confident Brandon Miller will be taken. It's like somewhere in the top six, let's say. Yeah. I, I, to be honest, outside of Victor Wembanyama and Scoot Henderson, I would say he is the most likely player to be taken in the top five, if only because most teams just know what they're getting with Brandon Miller. They're getting a guy who is six foot nine, who can step away, shoot 40% from three on seven attempts per game. He is a capable team defender who can switch, who can manage lower uh, in the lineup, guards, wings, things like that, while also being able to manage threes and fours due to his size. He's not a great defender. He's not like some super plus on that end, but he is a capable defender that is going to help you space the floor that is growing into an ability to really create shots for himself as a driver. I would like to see a little bit more of an increased in between game from him as well. But as a whole, I think there's just there. He has fewer flaws, I guess is what I would say than anybody else in the class uh, after the top two. It's funny. I want to ask you about the mid-range game part because you brought up earlier with the Thompson twins. It's hard to know how much of their transition stuff is based on them versus based on their environment. Yeah. I'm thinking the exact same thing here with Brandon Miller in the mid-range jumper. When he was a high school and AAU prospect, he dominated playing one-on-one in the elbows in the mid-post areas. Now he's at Alabama, which is much more of a numbers metrics based shot selection offense. Space the floor out to three or attack the basket. We don't want guys taking a ton of pull up jumpers. That's just who Nate Oates, former math math teacher, really is. I think that there's a ton of upside for Brandon Miller to show that middle game off at the next level because we've seen it before with his AAU and high school tape. He's so polished offensively in all those different areas. He rarely has bad games. He's very consistent as a shooter, and he's just, compared to other freshmen, one of the most consistent guys because even if the shot's not falling on one night, he adjusts. He knows how to make his team better in a lot of different ways offensively. 
And Alabama's number one team in the country right now as we're having this conversation. There's been palpable buzz about him all the way back to the summer. Coming out of that Alabama locker room about how he's different. He's special. Yep. There's something to this guy. And I think it just drastically overlooks all of those elements to look at one small flaw that he had at the start of the season about finishing that he's already corrected going into one of the most physical conferences in America in the SEC. This guy checks every single box for me. I don't know if he's going to be an absolute star 25 point per game scorer, but at the very least, like you said, teams are going to know what they're getting with Brandon Miller and it's consistent offensive production in a myriad of ways. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. This is a guy that that is an NBA starter. There, there's just, it's hard to come to any other conclusion. I think uh, let's take a quick commercial break and then we're going to dive into the rest of this class, which I think is interesting. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash gametheory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash gametheory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash gametheory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash gametheory. Okay, Adam, we're back. <laughs> Let, let's talk about the rest of this class because I, I think that it's 
We're really excited about the top two guys. There are reasons for excitement about many of these players. How would you rate the 2023 draft class from a depth perspective through the lottery through the first round? Yeah. I like to think about draft classes in terms of ledges, Sam, that there are certain drop-offs of talent that if I'm on the higher part of that ledge, I know I'm getting a really high-quality player. But if I have the spot right after there's a a drop-off in talent, I'm probably a little bit disappointed in where I am or not getting the the typical type of, of player that I would expect. And I think there are a few ledges to really be aware of. One, certainly, we talked about already, picks one and two with Vic and Scoot there is, to me, a substantial drop-off just in terms of the talent level because those two guys would be in consideration for the number one pick in almost any draft class. Uh, I feel like there is a lot of depth in that top 10 or even lottery range, but I don't know how to sort them out at this point in time where I would feel much more comfortable if I know I'm picking in the 7 to 12 range as opposed to having picks like 4, 5, or 6 just because I I think that the separation of talent between those guys isn't as apparent right now as it might have been in previous years. And then we get to the the middle and later parts of the first round. You and I have had this conversation before. I think there's maybe only 22 or 23 guys that are staring at me right now as obvious first-round picks. That may change a little bit later. There might be some guys who continue to to get better and show that their performances are legit, but – at this point, that later, you know, last six or seven slots in the first round is going to be a really challenging area for me. So I, I've been thinking about this class a little bit differently, even than that. I agree with you on like the 22, 23 guys. Like that, that's something we've talked about a lot. But the, the more I think about this class in terms of its depth down to that level, I just think there are a lot of incomplete prospects that are just, we're going to have incomplete information on. And it's in part because the upper class prospects in this draft class are not very good. We just kind of need to be real about that. I think that I have currently two guys that are juniors or seniors or third year players or greater currently listed in the mock draft that will be coming later this week over at The Athletic. That's just a remarkably low number. This college basketball season, it came in being discussed as the year of the big. Well, the big guys, like outside of Zach Eadie, Azolas Tabellis, they haven't really played up to par, right? Like, you know, all due respect to Drew Timmy, who I love, you know, offensively, he's been very good, but he hasn't really shown a ton of progress defensively. And in part, I think that's due to Gonzaga's guards not being great defensively. Oscar Shibway has not been very good this year, just straight up. I, I don't think he's been uh, like a helpful player for Kentucky in many regards. Uh, his defensive deficiencies are just very real for them, and this is currently on track to be the worst Kentucky defense that John Calipari has coached since he returned to college basketball playing for Memphis, or, or uh, coaching Memphis back in, I think, 2000. Yeah. Maybe 2002. Uh you know, Armando Baycott hasn't been awesome this season, and you can point to the guards not getting him the ball, but his defense hasn't been very good. Uh, you know, Hunter Dickinson ha- has been not awesome this season from a consistency basis. So you look up and down this college basketball season. I think part of the reason there's so much parity 
is that there's just less talent across the board among the sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And while there are a lot of talented freshmen that came through this recruiting class, those guys like Keontae George is an incomplete player right now. He is pretty inefficient in terms of his decision-making. Grady Dick is, uh, I, I really like Grady Dick's, you know, intelligence and his IQ and his reactivity. Grady Dick, I, I think, is a player that has a real chance to be hunted in the NBA defensively yeah. on the ball by bigger, high-level shot creators. I know he's super smart. I really like the way that he thinks about the game defensively. I really like his hand-eye coordination. It's just a different beast at that level in terms of quickness, in terms of everything that's going to be brought to the table when you're one-on-one with those guys on an island and you get hunted in mismatches in screen situations. You know, Jarris Walker is a guy that has been really good, and I've come around on Jarris in a big way. I have him as a top seven player in the class right now. But, like, I don't know how confident you are in the offensive game. I I feel way better about him as a big as opposed to, like, a, you know, three or a four. And he's six foot eight with a seven foot two wingspan, but I think he profiles best as a big, and maybe that's a great way to get a marginal inefficiency by playing Jarris as a big, letting his motor take you home on the glass, letting him short roll and do things. I really like it. Like I I like there, I I think there is just, I, I like a lot of these players. I like a lot of the talent in this class. Bryce Sensabaugh, you know, a guy that has real deficiencies defensively. Jet Howard, another guy that has real deficiencies defensively. There's a lot of talent here. Yep. But these guys have a long way to go in terms of being able to, like, step onto an NBA court and make a difference because so many of them are teenagers. Just so, so many of them are at such a nascent stage of their development at this point. So I think there's just a lot of uncertainty in this draft class is the way I'm thinking about it. I was talking to a friend that I don't really want to um, put on blast necessarily because he has his own podcast and he can talk about this at some point. But one thing we were talking about was the fact that you could end up looking five years down the road in these like 22, 23 guys, you just have to jumble them up in terms of the order that they should have been taken in because we are working with incomplete information here with a lot of these guys, because you're always working with incomplete information with teenagers. Yeah. I think that's, that's really, really fair. Uh, We've been talking about this, about the draft class all the way back to the summer, Sam, like who are the upperclassmen that are going to force their way into the first round. And thus far there's been very, very few of them, if any, who have really stood out as legit NBA type of players. Like I want to give a a shout out to Chris Murray at Iowa because I think he's been the, the most consistent upperclassman guy and solidified himself, at least for me as a top 20 pick. He's a really, really good basketball player who just finds ways to impact the game. His maturity shows on the floor for Iowa every time he's out there. His consistency shows as a result of him knowing how to get to his spots and what to expect because he's been through it before. We don't have that same level of consistency. I I hate to bring it back full circle to Brandon Miller, but I said earlier he's the most consistent freshman that we've seen. Every other guy can go through and show these ridiculously high flashes in games that we fall in love with. Like we saw Jet Howard go off for 34 points and torch people as a shooter. We've seen unbelievable showcasing of, of skills from GG Jackson, where he can take over a game offensively for a guy of his size. We've seen Grady Dick just scorch the nets on fire as a three point shooter. 
but all of these guys have had several warts that have shown as well. And NBA teams are going to have to really do a lot of deep diving into the film, into the character work, into figuring out exactly how they plan on developing these guys to make sure that whoever they end up with are the guys that really make it and bring everything together as opposed to continuing to show these inconsistencies two, three, four years down the line. Okay. So guys like Anthony Black, Nick Smith, Kaysen Wallace, Jarris Walker, Kim Whitmore, et cetera. We've known their names for months now. We, we've known that they're going to be in the first round, potential lottery picks, probable top 15 picks. Who are some of the guys that over the course of the last month or so have really jumped up your board and really raised their stock and raised their, uh, their abilities in your esteem? It's time for me to brag about my boy uh, because I, I absolutely love watching him play. And I, I now tune into almost every Indiana game because yeah. of him. It's Jalen Huchifino, the point guard there. Great NBA body, 6'5", maybe 6'6", good length. Unbelievable point of attack defender. So many people want to start on the offensive end of the floor with him. I have fallen in love with Jalen Huchifino for his defense. He's yeah. hard to screen. He's long and big, but he moves well guarding smaller guys and uses his length well in space. He can play in switchable lineups in the NBA, and he can play in non-switchable ones, chasing guys over pick and rolls for 25 to 32 minutes a night. On the offensive end of the floor, he has really figured out how to be a consistent playmaker for others. He reads pick and roll coverages really, really well and is not shy about just making the same right decision over and over and over again in a game. Some guys kind of get bored with that and try to just make the highlight fancy play. Like if he draws two defenders, he's pocket passing that thing to Trace Jackson Davis every single time. We've yep. seen some growth from him as a pull-up shooter, particularly when he's going to his right. I think he's solid enough. Like there are flashes and inconsistencies from three, but the jump shot mechanics are solid enough and projectable enough that it's not the biggest worry in the world that I would have. Like he has gotten so much closer to, and I think right now might be in lottery range because he's been so consistent over the last month or so. I've just been really impressed with the way he plays. I totally agree with that. I have him uh, in my top 15 right now. There we go. He, he is such a complete player. It's just yeah. very easy to imagine him playing a significant role on a really good team yep. like, very quickly, to be honest, because he is so good defensively, because he makes good decisions. I think he's a player that is really going to endear himself to coaching staffs early yes. in his NBA career because of how complete he is. He doesn't really take a ton off the court as long as the shot translates. Uh, this is a guy that you and I talked about as potential first round pick early in the season. We were on this. Like, if you look at my first mock draft at the Athletic, I had Jalen Huchfino in the first round, despite the fact that he was, what was he like, twenty fifth in his recruiting class, yeah. something in that ballpark. Uh, I don't even. I, I think he was a five star. Might have been like a high four yeah. star, maybe. Like, he's a guy that we've really had our eye on for a while, and it took him a little bit because he got hurt early in the season. But now that he's gotten over that injury and gotten a little bit of consistency, he's been really, really good. I completely agree with you. A couple other guys that I do want to bring up. Uh, Rob Doster brought up Trey Alexander. This is a guy that I'm coming around on yeah. more and more as I watch him. 
another just absolute killer defender. Uh, I don't know if I have him in the first round yet. I need to like really think about that a little bit more. Uh, Trey Alexander, though, is shooting the absolute lights out. He's at 41.4%, which, by the way, uh, this was a significant liability as a shooter last year. He was a 28% three-point shooter, but has always made free throws, has always seemed to have real touch. He makes really high-level passing reads. He doesn't turn the ball over. And arguably, I don't know if he's the best perimeter defender in the Big East, but he's up there. He battles, he fights, he gets through screens. He's a good one-on-one defender. He's a little bit smaller than what you want from the role. Uh, he's six foot four as opposed to Jalen Hutchfino, who's six foot six foot five, six foot six, something in that range. But I'm a buyer of Trey Alexander. On some level, he's really helped himself recently. Another guy that is a standout to me is Kobe Bufkin at Michigan. Yes. Yeah. The more I watch Kobe Bufkin, the more I wonder if he is a first round pick. He is six foot four. He's very skinny and he has to work on the shot, but athletically he's very twitchy. Another guy that doesn't take anything off the floor. Really, really smart uh, in terms of his passing ability, playing off the ball and sometimes on the ball in that Michigan offense. Smart defender, really the only guy that I kind of buy into defensively uh, with that team a lot of the time. Uh, Not a great defensive team, the Michigan Wolverines this year, but The other thing with Kobe Bufkin is he's actually younger than Jet Howard. And he is someone that is freshman aged doing what he's doing. I think he is currently the only guy that is freshman aged in the country to be averaging 12 points, four rebounds, three assists while shooting at least 45% from the field. Uh, It's just that across the board production for the age that you can really buy into. Wouldn't be surprised to see him as a guy that really rises over the course of the next month during the pre-draft process. Uh, I've kind of tried to jump it a little bit by putting him in the mock for uh, later this week. We'll see if that works out or if I look a little bit dumb, but I look dumb regularly enough. So I think we're okay with it. Uh, Anyone else that stands out for you now that I've named a couple? Yeah, I mean, he's been a guy we've talked about before on the podcast, but he was not on preseason radars and I think is very, very legitimately entrenched in being a first-round prospect at this point. Taylor Hendricks at UCF. Yep. Uh, just ha- checks a lot of boxes for the things that we we kind of see and look for from NBA teams. 6'8", six, 6'9", six, wing, defends well, shoots the ball from three, has real athleticism. One of the few guys who checks those boxes of looking the part, and having some of the statistical metrics that back it up in terms of how he finishes at the rim with a, a lot of dunks as well as three-pointers. It's just a, a really, really high swing for the fences type of prospect because of what he can continue to turn into. I think he's still raw in some areas, but at the yep. end of the day, he might have shown enough just with the tools and the flashes to be a first-round guy this year. Okay. Another guy I'll mention is I, I like Julian Phillips. The more that I watch him, I, I just kind of buy into the defense at the end of the day. I, I think he is going to be a really good defender at the NBA level. It's hard to find guys that are six foot eight to six foot nine that I think have shooting potential. Like I, I think his shots actually kind of fixable uh, just in terms of shot prep as much as anything. That's more his issue. He kind of squares off a little bit too often when he gets the shoulders turned and gets one foot in front of the other. I think the shot looks much better. I think there is quite a bit uh, that could work there. What I will ask you next, though, is what 
are the skills in this draft class that you think there is an abundance of versus what are the skills in this draft class or positions in this draft class that you think are relatively weak? Yeah, it's a good question. I think this class is, in terms of positioning, it's decent on guys who are in that like 6'6", six, six, maybe 6'5", six, to 6'8", range that can do different things. Um, that there's going to be a lot of, I, I call it kind of wing potpourri, right? Like you can get some guys that really knock down shots. You get some guys that can be really high-level defenders. Some guys who are more slasher handler. Just a lot of different things that you can find at those wing multi-defender type of positions. This is a class that is really, really weak on lead guards, though. I don't think that there are a lot of guys who make great like elite-level decisions with the basketball in terms of how they create for others. There aren't a ton of guys who marry the ability to create on offense while being solid at the point of attack on defense particularly in, in terms of younger, investable guys. I think, you know, we talked about Jalen hood Shafino. He fits that archetype of being a big guard. He looks more like a wing physically when you see him yeah. out on the basketball court just because of how big and sturdy he is in the way that he's built. It's, it's just not a really deep class of guards. Uh, beyond that, you know, we've we talked about college basketball being the year of the big. I think a lot of those guys also have one particular, I don't want to call it a fatal flaw necessarily, but something that gives you a lot of pause of wanting to move them into being a priority type of big man. So as I look at this draft class, like really heavy in that bigger wing area, very light in terms of NBA translatable skills from bigs and lead guards. The other thing that I would bring up is shooting. I think this is a shooting heavy class across the board. Uh, I'm a buyer in Victor Wembanyama. I know what the numbers say, but I I think he is going to be a high level shooter. There's no reason to think otherwise. Brandon Miller is a terrific shooter. Bryce Sensabaugh for all of the questions I have about him defensively and in terms of his uh, difficult shot decision-making tree. Uh, Great shooter, knocks him down off the catch like they're nothing. Like he's going to be able to shoot at a high level in the NBA for sure, I think. Uh, Jet Howard, another guy I think is going to shoot at a really high level. Grady Dick is a guy that's going to be an elite level shooter in the NBA. Max Lewis, I think, is going to be a good shooter in the NBA. Uh, Jordan Hawkins, a terrific movement shooter that's going to be a real weapon. All of these guys are potential first-round picks. All of them, I think, could end up having seasons where they shoot 40% from three, if not in Grady Dick's case, where I think, and probably Brandon Miller's case, he's going to be consistently above 40% from three. So shooting is a skill that I look at as something that you can really find in this draft class. I think that teams uh, that are looking for shot makers and looking for floor spacers will do well in this draft class. Uh, Point guards, you definitely bring up. I think that I think Amin and Scoot are both point guards. So like, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to be like, this is a weak point guard group, but beyond that, it it does get questionable in a hurry. I I think that is reasonable. Um, I'll I'll also just say like, there are just so many question marks at the end of the day, right? There just are in, in this class. So we'll have to, we'll have to see. And one of those question marks is Gigi Jackson. 
What do you make of Gigi Jackson, the former number one recruit in the 2023 recruiting class who reclassified into the 2022 recruiting class in order to attend South Carolina and has since, oh boy, uh, been all over the map? Yeah, I thought you liked me, Sam. I didn't think you'd throw me this type of question here on on the pot tonight. Uh, It's hard to know what to make in Gigi. I think at the end of the day where my compass continues to point on an evaluation of him is that he is essentially the youngest guy in this draft class who has shown some really, really high-level flashes. And I don't know if the system, the coaching structure that he has down there at South Carolina – is one that is going to allow him to play with a great deal of accountability. That at the NBA level, all of the skills, all of the upside that he has needs to be reeled into a tighter package, a consistent role and understanding of how he can utilize those skills and somebody that's going to hold him accountable on the defensive end of the floor. So you mentioned this idea of so many people being incomplete evaluations in this class and knowing that they're going to get drafted somewhere in the first round anyway, because of their talent and upside. I think the Gigi Jackson is firmly entrenched within that as being the most high variance outcome guy. And I think it's also going to be so strongly dependent on where he goes after he gets drafted. Is this going to be an organization that can hold him accountable, get the most out of him on the defensive end of the floor and really reel in some of the offensive decision-making struggles that he has to make sure that he's effective on the floor. It's so hard to say. And and that's why I've, I like everybody else just struggle to know exactly where to put Gigi right now. Like the, the flashes are super, super tantalizing and really high caliber, but anywhere from that, like eight to 20 range, I think is fair game for him. Yeah. It's hard because the contextual situation around him is so bad. Uh, This is not a team that has a lot of talent, but moreover, we've talked a lot about the fact that we have not liked the way that that coaching staff has just kind of given him the keys to just like get up and go and just like go for it and do kind of what he wants. The inefficiency is just so real. Like the counting stats, he's averaging like 16 and six, right? He has a 47.9 true shooting percentage. He has a 6.4 assist rate. He's like an 18% turnover rate. Like these are numbers that are nowhere near first round range and first round caliber, right? But then you remember, and in part, the the reason those efficiency numbers are so low is because they have empowered him to take these tough shots. You can make the case that it's because he's the most talented guy on the team and somebody has to take them. But at the end of the day, like I kind of think that this is just a mistake in terms of a commitment to go to South Carolina where there isn't anybody around him. I would be so interested to see what he looks like next to other good players. Like I think that if you would place him at North Carolina, for instance, where he was originally committed, it would be really interesting. Like he could, try and be like a floor spacer. He could try and be more of a secondary option. Like that, he would add real size, more athleticism than Pete Nance is giving them at the four. That's the kind of thing where I think he would look much better than what he looks right now. Because again, South Carolina's coaching staff just says, we're going to give you the ball and we're going to let you do whatever. And that is a 
bad decision because he's not ready to make decisions at a really high level, at least at the SEC level right now. He has like a one to four assist to turnover ratio. And it's just so rare that you see like even a remotely high level passing read. But here's the thing. Of course he was not going to look great doing this on a team that is not very talented. He was 17 years old when he got to college and was given the keys to a college basketball team in the middle of the COVID era where there are more players that are 23 years of age or older in the country than there have ever been. And we can talk about the fact that there might not be as many elite level prospects necessarily that are 23 years old that are real potential draft prospects. But the talent level from those upperclassmen, like on the middle tier of those players, is higher. And giving Gigi those keys was not a good idea. On top of it, now we have like the Instagram live thing where he went out and kind of publicly commented saying the coaching staff isn't giving him the ball in late game opportunities. I mean, like none of this has been handled well from the jump. He's an incredibly talented kid. I just don't know what to do with it. And I think scouts right now are kind of scrambling to try and figure out where to settle with him. Because I, I frankly don't know where to place him, if I'm being completely honest. Yeah. I, I just think this whole thing has been so I, – I think it's been bungled. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I think it's been mismanaged from the jump, from the decision to go to South Carolina to – the way South Carolina has given him every opportunity to do whatever when he wasn't ready for that uh, to then his decision-making to question the coaching staff. Uh, It's none of it's good. None of it has gone well in my opinion. And I'm disappointed like that. I I don't like, I don't like being this guy. I don't like saying like all of these negative things. I don't even blame the kid for most of it. I, I blame him for going on Instagram live. That was a bad decision, but like, I don't really blame him for a lot of this. He's 17 years old. He's going to go where people are guiding him. He's going to do like what, you know, the smarter people around him in theory think he should do because he doesn't have experience within the industry because he's 17 years old when he committed to South Carolina now 18 years old. So I don't know, man. It's every time I watch him, I'm just like disappointed by what I'm seeing, I guess. And that, that makes it hard because he is an incredibly talented player on some level. I think I just hope that, I hope that some of the habits get fixed. Yeah. I guess is what I would say. Well, in trying to contextualize it in comparison to other draftable prospects, it's really challenging because everybody else has some sort of flaw in this kind of, you know, mid to late lottery range that we need to see get worked out. Like Bryce Sensabaugh, Jet Howard, Grady Dick, like great offense, really, really struggle on the defensive end of the floor. Anthony Black, Asor Thompson, guys who might struggle to shoot the, the ball consistently in some different areas. Jarris Walker, is he a four or a five? Nick Smith, can he stay healthy? Kaysen Wallace, like do we really know what the best offensive role is going to be for him after watching this 1964 Kentucky offense? Like there are questions in a lot of ways here that makes it really hard to just penalize Gigi and not take everybody else in consideration for that. But at the end of the day, I would agree with you with your assertion that he's probably the most frustrating or challenging guy to try to slot on a board right now. Okay. Last question here before we move on to talking a little bit more about Ben Simmons. Sure. The Duke guys in general have been a bit disappointing this year. Uh, Derek Whitehead has dealt with injury issues. Kyle Filipowski 
his being great, but is just kind of who he is on some level, like a bit more limited than Derek Lively, than Tyrese Proctor, than Dariq Whitehead, just athletically. In addition, Derek Lively has not been very good. And Tyrese Proctor is shooting like 37% from the field and 27% from three or something like that. Where do we settle on these Duke prospects? Because they do play a real role here in terms of what the depth of the class is going to look like. 100% they do. Uh, the whitehead stuff is going to be the most challenging because it's it might come down to some of the medicals and the testing and, so, and things like that. Like I, I don't know how to contextualize how much of his struggles are due to injuries and him just not having the same athletic burst that he might have had in high school and how much of it is hey, he's kind of like a thicker stronger wing who doesn't have a great first step and it's going to be really much more of a catch and shoot guy at the next level I, I struggle to know what the answer to that is so he's probably who I'll, I'll wrestle with the most uh, I think Derek Lively and I've said this to you before has a game that translates well to the NBA that the lack of spacing on the Duke court the lack of guys who can knock down a shot or create easy looks for him out of the pick and roll. It makes him look worse right now, but those are a lot of problems that get solved at the NBA level. I feel really consistent about his, his defense being able to translate. I think Filipowski is like you said, very much who he is. There are limitations. They are kind of what we thought they were coming into the season, but he has shown a lot of competitiveness and ability to take over off the dribble in more ways than I thought he did. So I, I do want to highlight that. I think this has been a positive year from Filipowski in terms of his draft stock. And then Proctor is all over the place. He might benefit the most from having an extra year. Uh, his game as a pick and roll type of creator would in theory work well in the NBA, but he's just got to get more reps and continue to, to find out how he scores the basketball to ever be a threat with the ball in his hands in the NBA. Yeah. You can't score right now. No. And that's an issue. Um, can't score consistently, let's say. Uh, those are the guys that I think of like really hindered themselves at some point. Um, you know, is there anyone else that like you think has really like kind of driven themselves down before we finish up here? You know, not a ton of guys are, are jumping out at me at first. Like I know I had unrealistically high expectations for Boba Miller coming into the year, like clearly not ready for for any offensive type of role right now for Florida state. So that's one that I think will end up being a multi-year guy, but it, it comes down to, we entered this draft class hoping or expecting that there'd be an upperclassman who would continue to emerge, who would make that leap forward into becoming a first round pick and, and take opportunity. And the fact that that hasn't happened has been really the biggest disappointment. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. Okay. That's it for a big picture look at the 2023 NBA draft. Did we hit on everything that we needed to, Adam, in your opinion? I think so. Uh, if there's one last kind of thing to, to throw out there, it's, it's really the international look outside of Victor Weminyama. Like, I don't know how you feel about depth or quality of different international prospects, or maybe yeah, it's a good idea. We, we even just say non-traditional prospects. Like, you know, we could talk about a Leonard Miller, a City Sissoko playing down there yeah. with the G League Ignite. Like, I think that those are some of the guys who hold the keys to maybe filling out the rest of that first round that are kind of off of our, our typical radars right now. 
Yeah, and you know, like one guy that I've been pretty clearly high on throughout the process is Rayon Repair. Uh six foot six, seven foot three wingspan, maybe even six foot seven now. Just a monster defender. Like playing a critical role right now for the New Zealand Breakers in the playoffs, like as the number two seed in the league. He is starting for them, and he is it's not a situation where they're just gonna like gift him minutes in the playoffs right now. He has earned those minutes. It's not a situation like the end of last year where the breakers were kind of out of the mix and they just kind of let Usman Jang rock a little bit. Uh, Rayon repair has earned the minutes he is playing right now and has been terrific uh, in them on the defensive end. There are offensive concerns, but I do see him as like a top 15 guy. The guy I'm coming around a little bit more on is James Najee. Yes. I tend not to really like these project D bigs, but the more I watch him, the more I think his instincts are actually really, really good, yes. both as a roller and as a rim protector. Uh, I ended up with a pretty high grade on Ishmael Kamagate last year. I think he's better than Ishmael Kamagate. Um, uh, yeah, I, I like him a little bit more than what I thought. And then Leonard Miller, C.D. Sissoko, you know, like I like C.D.'s upside a little bit more than I like Leonard Miller's upside, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, Leonard Miller... The thing I like about Leonard Miller is I like the fact that he's embraced doing the dirty work this year. Yeah. I like that he has embraced being like the, the guy who will get the offensive rebound, who will get into the tough areas, who will uh, sit in the dunker spot and wait for dump off passes and then finish through contact. That's what he needed to do. Like he, he has done what we needed to see from him just outside of the shooting. I, I really don't buy the shot. I, I like the touch. I think he has showcased some touch at lower levels, particularly in the Ontario Scholastic League at times. But when things speed up, man, it, it doesn't look nearly as good. It doesn't look nearly as polished. The mechanics are all over the map on that catch and shoot three. So I, I'm intrigued at the very least by a lot of those guys. And I'll, I'll say this, Mojave King just had a career game uh, with the G League Ignite earlier this week. I'm still like intrigued if Mojave King is a second round pick just from a shooting perspective at the very least. It's a total flyer. It, he probably ends up in the NBL uh, if we're being genuine about this, but n- not the worst guy in the world to take a chance on, I don't think. Yeah, well, I'm really coming around on Repair. This is a guy that I know you've turned me on to a lot the last few weeks here, and I'm glad to see you're coming around on Najee because that's somebody who I was pretty high on coming into this draft cycle and I think has some real defensive yeah. impact that, that he can bring to the table. Uh you know, one guy we talked about preseason, Nikola Jurisic out of Mega, hasn't really been the greatest season for him. Um, no. But I think at the end of the day, some of these names that we're talking about here are those late risers through this prospect, this process. I can see a also, lot of those, uh, those guys coming one, late and, and really one more thing about role. One more thing about Jurisic. So we got really excited about the Thompson Twins playing against Jurisic. And like we got excited about Jurisic playing against the Thompson Twins. Yeah. Does this kind of make us rethink the Thompson Twins a little bit? Because like Jurisic, he looked like the second best prospect in that game behind Amon. Yeah, it's it's one game. <laughs> it's it's one game. It's one game. I, I'm I'm trying I'm trying not to get there. It's it's one game. It is. It's one I game. I, I I'm you. with you. I I I know. I'm just saying like yeah. this, this happened earlier in the year we got to see these two guys play these three guys play really didn't what wasn't wasn't the best game 
for the Thompson twins. Uh, Almond was really good. Uh, Sore was a little bit less good in that game. Okay. Let's talk about Ben Simmons. I don't know about you, man. Like, I just feel bummed watching Ben Simmons now. It's kind of where I'm at. Like, this is a guy that at 23 years old, like rightfully made an all NBA team. He averaged 16 points, eight rebounds and eight assists, shot 59% from the field and was one of the five best defensive players in the NBA. And you watch him now and it's just not there. Like it's, this is a Nets team that's desperately calling out for someone like this. And it's, it's just not there. I mean, before I get into like what Jacques Vaughn said and everything, like when you watch Ben Simmons, like, what are you, what are you watching? I'm, I continue to just be disappointed for what could have been. Uh, I think that's just yeah. the the easiest way to say it, that a, a true 6'11", seven foot guy with his handling, his speed, his ability to cover ground on the offensive end of the floor combined with really good vision and playmaking. We saw some high level flashes from him in Philadelphia, even without a jump shot. And if he's not even willing to try to get to the basket and score, and, and he's just so much more of a, I got to move this. I got to pass the ball around and just create, create, create for others. It, it it makes it so much easier to guard any team that he's on. And it's disappointing. And I'm glad that you brought that up because Jacques Vaughn gave a really interesting answer, you know, getting this from Timmy good times over at ESPN. Uh, His Twitter feed, you know, kind of laid it all out. Jacques Vaughn said, to a question, does the lack of having stars drawing the defense around him make it more difficult to figure out the best ways to use Ben Simmons? Jacques Vaughn's answer, it's going to be some work that we have to do because you just take a look at what the lineups could potentially look like. You put another big next to Ben, then you got to figure out what the spacing is around him. Then if you put another playmaker next to him, then you got to figure out what Ben looks like without the basketball. Then if you go small with Ben, then you have to figure out, can you rebound enough with him? So the challenges are ahead of us. We'll look them head on. We'll figure it out. We have the personnel to figure it out, whether it is me mixing and matching throughout different pieces of the game and allowing him to have a group and run with a group. That part we'll figure out, but you see the challenges that lie ahead. It's It really comes down to two things for me. It's the shooting that he just never has improved ever. Uh, it makes it harder to keep him on the court. If he is a spacing liability, uh, you're essentially playing four on five when he's without the ball. The number two thing is he is he has lost it athletically in comparison to when he was younger. Uh, the back injury, it feels like, has really, really sapped his explosiveness, his flexibility. Like he was a flexible six foot ten athlete that could like get up and down the court had like very flexible hips, had very flexible movements throughout his core. And it just feels like he can't really do that anymore. He doesn't have the explosiveness in the open court that we used to see all the time where he was a freight train coming downhill when he got the ball off the glass and just went, I just like more than the mental stuff. And we can maybe talk about that. I just don't see the same guy physically anymore and to me that that's an even bigger like that that's what makes me sad when I watch Ben Simmons like that's what 
really substantially bums me out. Like you can see that the brain still works. Like his passing is still there. He has phenomenal hands. He has great hand-eye coordination. Like you, you can see a lot of it still there. It's just not, it doesn't work as well when he's not as athletic. And we've seen this with guys like Russell Westbrook, for instance, that no longer have the athleticism necessarily like fully dictate play when they lose that like step athletically, basically it just becomes really, really hard. Look, if, if you're not a great shooter and you're playing off the ball, you can make positive plays happen by being a great athlete. You go attack the offensive glass, you backdoor cut, you slash around, you take one or two bounces, and you just try to yam on somebody. There are ways to offset spacing issues if you're really, really bouncy, if you play with burst. And he's not able to do that anymore, and it just compounds the the lack of shooting and, and quite frankly, the lack of desire to want to finish through or over the top of contact. I think that right now he wants to be much more of a short role playmaker and somebody who just one, maybe two bounces and he gets rid of it and tries to use that great brain and passing ability of his to positively impact his team. I think it comes from a good place. You know, Ben Simmons gets a lot of, uh, I don't want to call it hate necessarily, but he, he gets hated on a lot for the progression that his career has taken. And, and I do think that the physical stuff has a lot to play into where he's at in his career right now. It's sad to see. I think I'm clearly rooting for Ben Simmons because he's such a fun, unique player when he's at his best. And those guys are just rare and really, really fun to watch. But I don't know if it, I don't know how to get it back, Sam. I, I really don't know. Well, and then like the, there is the confidence thing. Like he passed up another. Yep. like shot at the rim last night that probably should have taken. I, I think that there are real confidence issues now. And part of it could be like the body breaking down on him in terms of where the lack of confidence comes from. He just doesn't look like the same dude that we saw in Philadelphia. And, and that's, that's what's sad about this. Like Ben Simmons should have been a perennial MVP candidate. He genuinely should have been. He is six foot 10, 240 pounds. He developed into being a top five defensive player. He averaged 16, eight and eight as a 23 year old in the NBA. He was a top 20 player in the league as a 23 year old in the NBA. And this is where we're at. Like it, it, it's, it feels like we've been robbed of seeing what this could have become as much as anything. And I think that that's, that's what's sad to me about it. And look like, I don't think Ben does himself any favors. You know, I, I don't think that, it, you know, he, he seems to be a bit aloof about the whole thing. He can get, it seems defensive about everything. And then, you know, you see there were the things about him, like basically demanding to play point guard with Philadelphia and all of that stuff. And, you know, you, you can be your worst, your own worst enemy at times in terms of the public perception I do think the media is probably a little bit aggressive on him. I mean, look over here, over here, it is bonkers. Uh, there, there was like a news corp headline last night that he, when he passed up that layup, it was like, he made the cardinal sin of basketball again. And it's just oh, no. like, oh. what are we doing guys? Oh. Like, are, are we just like, are we going to pick out every specific play and like make a headline on it about Ben Simmons? Because, 
like there are issues in this country about like the way people perceive him because he didn't uh, hasn't yet played for the Australian boomers and a number of other factors that I really don't want to dive into right now. Um, It's just, it's sad. The entire situation is sad and it it is in part uh, exacerbated by the fact that I think many people in the media do seem to, enjoy and maybe maybe i see this more because i'm here right but i do think that many people in the media seem to enjoy often critiquing this and and critiquing ben and like when when bad things happen to him and and that that part of it sucks like that part of it is just not i get it like i I get that he's not what he was and I, i i totally understand that critiquing players is part of the job. Like you and I do it all the time. Yep. Uh, you know, it, it is important. You have to be able to point to specific examples. You have to be able to talk about guys in real tangible ways, but it, it feels a little bit different with Ben, I guess in the same way it feels a little bit different with Westbrook, right? Like again, like another guy that I do think can bring it on himself from time to time. It seems like the locker room situation from all reporting in Los Angeles was not great, but then you just see some of the stuff in the media and it's just like, this thing kind of sucks, right? Like the, the whole thing, it, it, it bums me out. Uh, when we see like talented guys seemingly go through either the end of their career, like Russell Westbrook is right now or injury issues mixed with like mental um, mentality issues like Ben Simmons seems to be going through. For me, as, as far as we've come as a society in terms of awareness on mental health stuff, on sports psychology, on the challenges and pressures that all of these guys face, we still have a long way to go in terms of how media, people like you and me, whoever, end up perpetuating that. And, yeah. and I think that's the challenge that – and where I feel sympathy with Ben Simmons is – he's got a lot to overcome. And when you add the physical challenges of the back, the different environments that he's been in missing an entire year of basketball, doesn't always help people. Like they're not going to come back and just be the same type of player, let alone person. So uh, I end up having nothing but a kind of sympathy for Ben in this regard and don't tend to throw a ton at him and, and feel like he is what's robbing us of being able to see this special and unique and great player. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'm just disappointed we don't get to see that because yeah. he's he's really, really fun on both ends of the floor. Like I loved Ben Simmons picking up guys from 35 feet and just poking loose balls away, taking off in transition from rebounds and runs and hitting these awesome passes over the top of defenses for transition dunks and layups. <laughs> the ability that he had in the half court to just take one bounce, spin move, and create an open shot for himself or somebody else. He's a really fun player. And – he hasn't looked like he has fun playing basketball in a long period of time. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that that translates over to how much of a joyful player he, he can be. He can and and how he's again, perceived, right? Yes. Like I, I think that a lot that, of it. Yeah. If he finds that again, I think that that's where the hope comes from. But again, is it physical? Is it mental? Is it situational? There are challenges that Jacques Vaughn definitely was right on the money with and how he, he talked about yep what needs to happen in order to get the best out of Ben Simmons. It's, it's hard to have him on the court with Nick Claxton. 
Like it's, it's hard. hard. And Nick Claxton is one of the five best defenders in the NBA this season so far. It, it's hard. It, it's really hard to have him on the court with Nick Claxton. And Nick has proven himself to be better so far this season. So I don't know, man. It, it's a challenge. All of this is a significant challenge, I think, in trying to figure out where the future of Ben Simmons lies. Uh, the future of this podcast lies in us finishing this episode. <laughs> Later this week, I will have Samson Folk on. We're going to talk a little bit about what the Raptors decided to do at the deadline and what their future holds after they aggressively bought Jakob Pertl as opposed to selling many of their uh, in-demand, in-their-prime players at the deadline. Then later in the week, I will have Schindler on, and we're going to talk a little bit about how some of the new players in their new homes are fitting and how some of those deadline acquisitions are working out thus far. Adam! Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in the world of spins. Yeah, this is the uh, final week of the basketball season for the team that I coach. So once we get to about a week from now, we're going to start having a lot more content being pushed out uh, from me. So look for any of that work coming on my Twitter account at the box and one underscore my YouTube channel, Adam Spinella, or my Substack, theboxandone.substack.com. As always, Sam, it's a pleasure to be here chatting hoops with you. Thank you, as always, for giving me this platform and opportunity to just enjoy an hour and a half of my life. <laughs> Go to theathletic.com slash game theory to subscribe to The Athletic. It's one of the best ways you can support the show. The other best way you can support the show, go hit that subscribe button on YouTube. That one is free. It will not cost you anything. It's simple. It's easy. Hit the like button at the bottom of this video if you're watching on YouTube. It's a great way to show some love for the podcast. Go subscribe on Apple, Spotify, whatever podcasting app you're using to listen to this show. There will be two more episodes this week. We just really wanted to avoid the Super Bowl. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.